Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your co-host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new story from our free online publication, Etched Onyx. Please join me and co-host, Melissa Collings, after the reading, when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. The Story Discovery Podcast is sponsored by Scrivener, the go-to app for writers of all kinds, used every day by best-selling novelists, screenwriters, nonfiction writers, and more. Think of Scrivener as the Swiss Army knife of writing apps. You can use just the parts you need, like the distraction-free writing view, or you can break out all the tools to plan, organize, research, and create your work. When you're done, you can easily export to multiple document, manuscript, and ebook formats. Our listeners get a 20% discount by using the coupon code Story Discovery at checkout. You can learn more at their website, literatureandlatte.com, or just type Scrivener into your search engine. Give Scrivener a try, you won't regret it. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All stories are copyright 2021, all rights reserved. Today's story is Locked Down for Murder. Written by Cheryl Rieger and narrated by Melissa Collings. Settle in and enjoy. Locked Down for Murder by Cheryl Rieger Later, social media blamed Brandon's death on stress from the pandemic. Everybody was stir-crazy, pushed to the edge of reason, so the explanation made sense. But in our private conversations, Lisa always swore the true cause was the onion rings at Rotiers. Because if we hadn't eaten lunch there as soon as the first lockdown lifted, we probably wouldn't have decided to kill him. When it all began, I hadn't seen Lisa for over ten years. In high school, Lisa was a member of one of the Golden Alpha Girl groups, rich in earthly possessions and beauty the sons around whom the social life of the school circled. I drifted from one outgroup to another, from the mystery book club to the math club to the theater club, not unhappy or friendless, but always aware of my lowly place in the universe. Gym class in the spring of our senior year was one of the rare times my path crossed hers. My most vivid memory of Lisa was of the two of us standing alone in the outfield of a softball game wearing flamingo pink uniforms under a dazzling cobalt blue sky. She was tall, strong-boned, and blonde, like a Viking warrior. And when I said something funny, she erupted with a deep belly laugh. Despite our difference in status, I had thought we had something in common, but maybe it was just a fleeting connection born from the exhilaration of being young and on the edge of our real lives with our whole futures ahead of us on a sunny spring day. After graduation, I forgot about Lisa and all the other alpha girls and went to an out-of-state college and then grad school in statistics, a profession that suited my introverted style, ending up in a job back in my hometown analyzing market research data. Saddled with student debt, I economized and found a basement studio apartment near a bus stop. My setup was lucky when the city declared the first lockdown because I could work from home while many could not. But it wasn't long until the occasional Zoom with my mother, who'd moved to Florida for retirement with my father, 
wasn't enough to satisfy even my minuscule appetite for social interaction. My days had become a fog of isolating, hand-washing, and toilet paper hoarding. I was simultaneously terrified and bored, divorced from the world and addicted to the faces on my screens. I let my hair grow wild, and because my apartment next to the furnace was as hot as Hades, I took to wearing only tank tops and yoga pants. Aside from groceries delivered to my doorstep, my sole physical connection with the outside was the view through the wavy glass of the window above my bed, a sliver of brown winter grass and gray sky. That Friday afternoon, I was making a few final notes on a data set from a bridal store chain in Brazil when my cell phone buzzed. Hey, Mom, I said, tapping my keyboard and closing the file. All day, the TV on my dresser had looped horrifying footage of bodies stacked like cordwood in refrigerator trucks. I was more than ready for my daily ten minutes of YouTube yoga, followed by streaming British mysteries on BritBox and reading James M. Kane on my e-reader. What's going on? I saw on your high school Facebook page there's a Zoom reunion of some of the girls in your class tonight, she said. I copied the link and emailed it to you. Ugh, not another Zoom, I said. I was on with my boss three times today, and I've got a date with Orville Redenbacher tonight. Don't you want to at least try to connect? She reeled off a few names from the class leaders before she added. And Lisa Phillips will be there. Remember her? Huh? The vision of Lisa in my senior year gym class dropped into my brain. I kind of liked Lisa. There you go my mother said. A popular girl in her own day, she still nurtured the fantasy her daughter enjoyed a similar social eminence, and she avidly followed the Facebook page of my graduating class. Lacking an appetite for humiliation, I'd skipped my 10th high school reunion, but now I was more curious than intimidated. Faces on my screen couldn't hurt me. At nine that evening, I turned off Miss Marple set in bed with my tablet propped on my knees, and, with the full glass of Chardonnay on the bedside table, clicked on the Zoom link my mother had sent. My screen filled with nine boxes, while more of them trailed off the top of the screen on a scroll. I squinted at faces, hunting for anyone I might recognize. The get-together started about as I expected. Everyone chatting and me silent, and I was beginning to wonder why I thought the get-together would be fun when Lisa spotted me. Hey, Lisa said, finger-waving. She was in the middle of the bottom row. Her blonde hair was a short bob now, but other than that, she hadn't changed a bit. A chat box opened on my screen. Gem class, senior year, remember? She typed. Hey, Lisa, nice to see you, I typed back. Those gem uniforms, am I right? She rolled her eyes, the movement just visible in her small box as she entered her response. OMG. So glad those days are dead and buried. And that was the sum total of my interaction with the girls on my screen as one by one they dropped off. Hubby is ready for dinner. Kids bedtime. Early morning tomorrow. And the faces of the remaining girls popped into larger and larger spaces until only Lisa and one other girl remained on the call. Eva Dupree. I remembered her. She squinted at my name in the label below my picture and smiled. I didn't recognize you she said. Love your hair. Thanks. That answered one question. My quarantine hairstyle would stay. Eva had won both prom queen and the lead role in the senior musical. 
I'd sewn costumes, unacknowledged even in the program. And I'd watched her from afar, mesmerized by her clear skin, shiny hair, and teeth that outdazzled a snowy winter's day. Now her heart-shaped face was drawn, her hair looked unwashed, and smudges circled her eyes. Nice to see you, Eva. You still live here in town? Yep, married and everything. She waggled a finger in front of the camera, displaying a rock nearly the size of the ice cube in my tumbler. She married Brandon, Lisa said. You remember him? I do. For Eva's sake, I tried to keep my dislike of Brandon off my face. He'd been the quarterback of our school's football team. Backstage at the musical, I'd seen him grab Eva by the arm when he thought no one was looking. She'd pushed him away for a moment, then melted with him into the shadows. The heat radiating from the couple had nearly set the prop room ablaze. My heart sunk. I'd never experienced that kind of torrid love. How's he doing? Eva started to grimace and quickly pulled her expression in a different direction. He's pretty good, she said with a small smile. Rambunctious as ever. What are you up to? I described my life to Lisa and Eva, de-emphasizing the solitary nature of my existence and underscoring my educational achievements and the international aspects of my job. After I threw around words like logistic regression and chi-square tests, they looked impressed, and I relaxed. I was beginning to believe no one cared about stupid high school groups anymore, so I was surprised when Lisa brought up senior year. Good old Brandon, she said. Hard to believe you're married to him. Remember when you started dating him and you were still seeing Rex even though you told everyone you had broken up? <laughs> oh, geez, don't bring that up. Big sore spot over here. Eva laughed, sipping from a margarita glass. What are you up to, Lisa? Lisa poured another glass of wine, her third during the call. Nada. I'm stuck at home with a three-month-old and a cranky husband. She laughed when she saw our expressions. Don't worry, I'm not nursing, but I am so bored I could scream. I have some books I can recommend, I said, if you're that bored. I'll try them, Lisa said, but mainly I can't wait to get out. Ditto, Eva said. This lockdown has me feeling trapped. She ran a finger across her cheek, under her eye, and my breath caught. Eva? I said, leaning closer to the screen. Is that a bruise on your face? What happened? This? She swiped her cheek with a fingertip, leaving behind a dot of red. I tripped and banged my face on the counter. God, are you bleeding? Lisa's face loomed larger on my screen as she inspected Eva's image. You better be more careful. Our conversation drifted to other topics. The pandemic, of course, and binge-worthy television. And before we knew it, it was after midnight. I gotta run, guys, I said, working tomorrow. Saturday? Lisa said. Poor you. I shrugged. I was glad to have the work, both for the money and for the time it filled. Weekdays had blurred into weekends. The only difference being Friday night still felt like a holiday. Old habits. You guys want to talk again tomorrow? Eva asked. This has been really fun, and I'm going nuts here. Lisa nodded eagerly. Sounds great, I'm in. Me too, I said. And just like that, I was in a cool crowd for the first time in my life.
The next day, when I mentioned to my mother that I was seeing Lisa and Eva on Zoom, she was so pleased. I remember them from the senior play, she said. Nice girls. I'm so glad you have some friends, honey. Over the next few weeks, our daily Zooms consumed more and more of my time. Neither Lisa nor Eva had paid employment, though it would be wrong to say they didn't work, as Lisa had a baby and Eva had Brandon, who was enough of a baby to demand unreasonable amounts of her time. When she was late for a call, she always had an excuse like, I had to remake dinner, Brandon didn't like the first one. Or, had to finish cleaning, Brandon likes it just so. One evening, when she had to jump off as soon as we started because Brandon was yelling for her from the other room, Lisa and I stayed on the Zoom and looked at each other for several long minutes without speaking. Well, she said after a while, that Brandon is certainly a handful. I nodded. Lisa, have you noticed anything strange about Eva? In what way? Lisa's blue eyes widened. Her face was on an angle. Looking at my face on the screen, not at the camera, so I caught a tightening of her mouth that made me feel more confident about the topic I was about to broach. That Brandon is more than a handful, I said. I took a deep breath. I think he's abusive. Lisa nodded. I thought it was weird how last night her eyes were so puffy, and today she had a lot of makeup on. Did you notice that? Yep, and when she lifted her margarita glass, the back of her hand was scratched, like she'd been in a fight. Lisa bit her lips and thought for a moment before asking, What should we do? I think we should let her know we're here for her. Like, she can count on us, even if she's isolated. I hesitated before I spoke again. But maybe you should be the one to say that. I mean, you're way closer to her than I am. We weren't that close, Lisa said. She kind of two-timed me with Rex, but... She trailed off and shook herself. Her choppy bob, already longer since our first call, brushed her shoulders. That's all in the past. What matters is what's real now. On our next Zoom, Lisa asked Eva to close the door to the study where she had her laptop. We could see the open doorway behind her, and Eva did so, promptly sat back down, and asked what was going on. Lisa leaned into the screen in the half-profile captured by her computer's camera. Eva, I'm just going to come out and say it. Lisa gulped visibly. We're worried about you. Are you... Is Brandon hitting you? What? Eva jerked her head back. No, of course not. Are you sure? I asked. Now confident enough of my position in the threesome to challenge her. Every day we hear about Brandon doing some asshat thing. And your face? It looks like you've been hit, Eva. Eva stared at me on screen her eyes wide. Had I gone too far? Pushed into a personal space where I wasn't wanted? The outsider feeling I had in high school swooped in on me like a vulture, ready to pick my not-dead-yet carcass. Sorry, I murmured. I shouldn't have presumed. No, you said the right thing, Lisa said. She and I exchanged what I thought was a look, our eyes not making real contact. Eva, we're here for you. We have to stick together, right? Things are so nuts out there, she waved an arm vaguely. We have to help each other through this. And if you're in trouble, and we want you to know, we'll do anything to help you, to keep you safe. 
Eva sat back and shrank to half her former size in the box. Then she leaned forward and said, Thanks. It's nice to know you have my back. She glanced over her shoulder, as though listening to someone on the other side of the door, and faced us again. Gotta run. See you tomorrow. She clicked off. Well, Lisa said after a few minutes. That went well. At least she said she'll see us tomorrow, I said. Let's see what she says then. Maybe she'll be willing to talk about it. The next evening, the three of us gathered, all speaking in half-whispers, and Eva told us Brandon had been hitting her for years. Why don't you leave him? Lisa said. You can come to my house. We have a spare room. You can quarantine here. Eva shook her head. He'll only find me, she said. And things will be worse. Can you call the police? I asked. I did that once, and it didn't work out well. Unless I want to press charges, their hands are tied. Eva buried her face in her hands, muffling her voice. I don't want him to go to jail for losing his temper. I just want him to stop. What are you going to do? I asked, ever practical. What's your plan? Eva lifted her tear-stained face. I don't have one, she said. You will, I responded, when we help you. After that, we didn't talk about Brandon every night, but we kept an eye on Eva's face. One night, when she had a large band-aid on her forehead, Lisa lost her temper. Damn it, Eva, she said. I'm so damn mad at Brandon, I could kill him. Eva laughed. <laughs> Join the club. The end of the lockdown, the first, there would be more to follow, but we didn't know it at the time, called for a celebration. For weeks, we had debated ways to make the occasion special. I hadn't been able to shake my obsession with eating onion rings, a culinary delight I couldn't produce in my postage stamp kitchen. Just think of them, I told my friends. Golden, crunchy, and glistening on the outside, and silky smooth on the inside. Let's get lunch at Rotier's to celebrate as soon as it opens. I need to bring Franny, Lisa said. Do they let kids in? You can wear her in a pack, I suggested. What do you say, Eva? Sounds good. She twisted up a corner of her mouth near a bruise on her cheek. But I was hoping for a margarita. They'll make you one, I clapped my hands. It's all set, right? Onion rings at Rotiers, and margaritas all around. The morning the lockdown ended, I called into work and asked for the day off. Mental health day, I told my boss. As though Mother Nature knew the lockdown was over, flowers sprouted all over the park that lay between my apartment and my destination. I paused surreptitiously to break off three tulip heads. The restaurant, little more than a hole in the wall built in the 1930s and not updated since, was dark and crowded and smelled deliciously of hamburgers, beer, and, of course, onion rings. Peering into the gloom, I spied Lisa and Eva sitting in a booth in the back room. I paused, suddenly worried I was making a big mistake. Were these girls my friends in real life or only in the faux world of our screens? Hey. Lisa stood up, wearing Franny in a front pack, and waved to me. I see you. We're back here. I joined them, giving each an awkward hug and a tulip, and slid in next to Eva. She and Lisa had started on margaritas already, and as soon as the waitress delivered mine, we clinked glasses in a toast. To friends, I said, a little choked up. To friends, Lisa and Eva echoed. As we drank and ate, the onion rings, some shared burgers and fries, a slice of lemon chiffon pie, and multiple margaritas, 
I surreptitiously studied Eva's face. Lisa caught me looking once and shook her head as though warning me not to say anything. When Eva excused herself to go to the restroom, I got up and let her slide out of the booth. Lisa watched Eva out of the corner of her eye until she was out of earshot, then leaned forward and whispered to me. Before you got here, I asked her how things were going, and she started crying. Oh no, I said, my heart sinking. Lisa hiccuped softly and ran her finger around the rim of her margarita glass. By now, Franny was dozing gently on the bench next to her, and the restaurant was quiet, suspended in the liminal world between the lunch and dinner crowds. We have to talk to her, she said. We have to convince her to leave him. But when Eva returned from the restroom, she refused our entreaties. I can't leave him, she said, cowering in the corner of the booth. Light from a high window slatted on her face in bands of shadow. I don't have any money of my own. What about a shelter for victims of domestic abuse? I asked. I called them, Eva said. They're full because of the pandemic. Yikes, Lisa winced. What about a training class and something at the community college? Eva shook her head. Closed. Pandemic. A new job? I wondered aloud. Maybe as a waitress or something? Lisa and Eva looked at me and said in unison, Pandemic. There must be some way out, I said, or something we can do together. I think it's going to be left up to fate. Eva grinned wryly, then winced and touched the bruise on her cheek. In the dim afternoon light, it seemed darker than ever. If he had a terrible accident, I'd be in luck. He has a couple million and an insurance policy. But what are the chances of that? Franny gave a little cry and Lisa picked her up, cradling her in a little pink blanket. She ran her hand over Franny's downy head and looked at me. Remember that Agatha Christie novel you recommended? The whole plot revolved around an inheritance that followed an accident. But it wasn't really an accident. A warm glow filled my chest. She had actually read one of the novels I'd recommended. I was about to ask whether she had read the next in the series when Eva interrupted. That's in the movies, not in the real world, she said. Lisa looked a little disappointed. Maybe not, I said, to keep the conversation going. A couple million dollars could be a big motivator to... To what? Eva whispered. She grinned at me slightly. To kill Brandon? Lisa kissed the top of Franny's head. That's a movie plot, but in real life, it's kind of a risk, wouldn't you say? For that kind of money, maybe it would be worth the risk, I said. My left brain, deprived of the pleasures of statistics for the day, hungered for a logical problem to solve. You have to do a cost-benefit analysis. Do the math. The math is easy, Eva said. But how do you get someone to have an accident? You're not talking about something like a hit-and-run, are you? I mean, to drive a car into someone. Oh my god, no, I said. A hit-and-run leaves evidence, and you have to slam a car into a body. I broke off, my stomach turning. Eva tilted her head, thinking. He could accidentally overdose on the testosterone booster he takes every morning. <laughs> or the sleeping pills he takes every night. That works, Lisa laughed. But how do we make sure that happens? I rotated to Eva. Does Brandon drink anything on a regular basis? Eva snorted. 
drink anything. He has a bottle of Russian vodka in the freezer, drinks it every night. Some nights more than others. Me, I stick to grocery store margarita mix and the cheapest tequila I can find. I wonder if the taste of vodka would cover dissolved sleeping pills, Lisa said. In Dame Agatha's stories, they often use nicotine poisoning. True, I said, pleased I was no longer alone in devouring the classic tales of murder and revenge. The nicotine is in the insecticide they keep in the gardening shed, or they lay their hands on arsenic somehow. I think we're better off with the pills, Lisa said thoughtfully. Definitely the pills, I said. We all laughed. Eva, we're going off the rails here. Just remember we're here for you, whatever happens. That's right. Lisa reached over the table to give Eva's hand a squeeze. Thanks, Eva said. You guys are all I have. Ditto, I said. Me too. Lisa raised her empty margarita glass. To friends. For the next couple weeks, until the second lockdown began, we met once a week at Rotiers, but never had as many drinks or as many dark thoughts. Eva seemed more cheerful now that she was able to get out of the house, and Lisa and I shared relief at her good spirits whenever we had a moment alone. But the good feelings didn't last long. At summer's peak, dire predictions drove us back to our bunkers, and on our nightly Zoom calls at the mercy of Pixels once again, we saw more and more evidence of Brandon's temper. Late one night after our call, Lisa texted me. We agreed to meet by the suffragette monument in the park near my apartment. Under cover of darkness, we removed our masks and shared a bench, a solid social distance apart, facing opposite directions so we wouldn't breathe on each other. She won't leave him, Lisa said. She'll never leave him. It's enough to make me wonder about those pills and that vodka. It's as though Lisa had voiced my own thoughts. Stars swirled above the city lights in the distance, and I felt dizzy. I rested my hands on the bench to steady myself. I think we've got to do it. Lisa sucked in a breath. We do? Who else will help her? My eyes filled with tears. Isn't this what friends are for? We talked it over and over, but really the plan as we explained it to Eva was quite simple, and it didn't take much to convince her it was airtight. A week later, still in lockdown, Eva mentioned that Brandon was going to Costco the next morning. Maybe you should go with him, I said, remembering Eva's suggestion she have an alibi, just in case. Now that you mention it, Eva said, perking up, I do have some shopping to do. The morning of what I will always think of as our first murder dawned bright and clear just like that day of our senior year when I laughed with Lisa on the softball field. I met her on the corner near Walgreens, and we strolled separately, ten yards apart, to Eva's townhouse. I was grateful for our masks, because with the addition of our sunglasses and baseball caps, we were unrecognizable. I had instructed Lisa to wear old clothes, so we could throw them away as soon as we got home. No one would ever link us to Brandon's death. The key was under the flower pot on the steps where Eva said she always left it. Does she understand what we're doing? Lisa whispered as we crossed the threshold into Eva's foyer. Absolutely, I said, taking a quick glance around. Eva had said Brandon's pills were in the medicine cabinet in the master bath. 
and when we open the cabinet door with our blue-gloved hands, we spy the bottle right away, next to a prescription for Eva that I recognized as a tranquilizer. Pandemic stress was rampant. Lisa started to reach for the bottle. Don't touch it, I said, pulling a pair of tongs from my pocket. I lifted the bottle with the tongs so I wouldn't smear any of Brandon's fingerprints already on its surface. You open it. Lisa twisted the serrated cap with a gloved hand. I dumped a dozen pills onto the counter. Here we go, I said. We had agreed to be equally involved, so we took turns dropping the pills into the bottle of vodka I retrieved from the freezer. But despite vigorous shaking, the tablets floated on the surface of the oily liquid like stubborn fish corpses. Crap! Above her mask, Lisa's eyes were panicked, and sweat rolled down her forehead. Now what? Find a bowl, I told her. A big one. We poured the vodka into the bowl, spooned out the undissolved pills, and crushed them on the countertop with spoons. We swept the powder into the bowl and poured the liquid back into the bottle. Shaken, the vodka looked as clear as a mountain stream. We have to get out of here, Lisa said. She tapped her wrist where her watch was hidden by blue latex. We've been here over thirty minutes. Still using the tongs, I jammed the bottle back into the freezer. Let's go. With the key back under the flower pot, we parted on the sidewalk and went in different directions. Sunglassed, capped, and completely unidentifiable in throwaway clothes under the unforgiving sun. I had it all figured out. What I hadn't factored in was the waiting. For three days, I held my breath, vibrating with anxiety. Had we put enough pills in the vodka? Was the whole effort going to be wasted? Worse, would Eva drink too many margaritas and find herself confessing everything to Brandon? My nervousness was intensified by Eva's brittle jokiness on our nightly Zoom calls as she downed one margarita after another. Finally, the text Lisa and I both hoped for, and feared, arrived. Bad news. Brandon died. The three of us had already agreed not to talk on the phone or computer following Brandon's demise. So every time my cell phone chimed, my apartment door rattled, or legs scissored past my basement window, my heart climbed into my throat and my gut clenched. Were the police calling? Were they outside ready to serve a search warrant? About to pound my door and seize my laptop? And how were Lisa and Eva holding up? Had they been questioned? Had they stayed silent? Then Eva texted again. Heard from the coroner. Accidental overdose. The funeral was held over Zoom. For the occasion, I unearthed a black blouse to wear on top of my yoga pants. Lisa looked pale in her little square as we listened on mute to the words of the minister, and Eva produced enough tears to convince observers that she was truly sorry to see Brandon shuffle off his mortal coil. The minister blamed Brandon's death on stress from the pandemic, and everyone nodded. It made so much sense. I found myself wondering if Lisa and Eva shared my sense of distance from Brandon's death and the strange consequent lack of remorse. After all, we had only conspired to put crushed medicine in a bottle of vodka. We hadn't forced the poisoned alcohol into Brandon's smug face. Everything Brandon got, he deserved. But the three of us knew what had happened. And when three people share a secret... We Zoomed a few days after the funeral, but our laughing friendship was replaced by long, nervous silences. We didn't exactly think we were being watched. We just suddenly had nothing to say to each other. 
Our calls dwindled to one a week, then every few weeks, and when we hadn't met for a while, I set up a Zoom. Eva declined, busy, but Lisa was available. When she appeared on my screen, her image was rigid, as though cut from cardboard. How are you doing? I asked, alarmed. Are you okay? Fine, she said stiffly. How are you? Same. My stomach turned uneasily at her strange demeanor. Was it my imagination, or had she paled? The lighting on her face made it difficult to be sure. Have you heard anything from Eva? She asked. No. My heart began pounding in my throat. Have you? She's getting married. Lisa's voice was flat. To Rex Beaufort. Rex? Rex Beaufort? The guy who played the lead in the senior play? My fingers tapped my forehead. Maybe it was Rex I saw backstage with Eva, not Brandon, as I'd remembered. Rex? Lisa leaned into the screen, and for an uncanny second, she seemed to stare directly into my eyes. I think, she whispered, she lied to us, just like she lied in high school to Brandon and to me. I jerked as though slapped. She lied to us? Shh! Lisa glanced over her shoulder and turned back to me. I think she set us up to, you know. No, I said. A chill fell over me. Wasn't it our idea? Think about it. Lisa closed her eyes briefly. She brought it up. His insurance policy, the pills, the vodka, all of it. Oh God, you're right. I practiced some deep breathing, my head spinning. You think she did this for the money? The money and Rex. He was at the funeral service. Did you see him? The middle row on my screen. I swear he was zooming from Eva's kitchen. That doesn't mean anything, I grasped for an explanation. He might have gone over to comfort her. There was something else, Lisa's mouth twisted. I didn't say anything at the time, but when we were at Rotiers, I thought her bruise was actually darker after she came out of the bathroom. Makeup? My chest tightened. I remembered noticing the bruise as well, but at the time had attributed its intensity to the half-light of the bar. So she faked it. The bruises. The hitting. All of it. Lisa's eyes were scared. What do you think we should do? She used us. The knot in my chest grew hotter and I slammed a fist into an open palm. I can't believe we were so stupid. We orient expressed poor Brandon. If I had known... Lisa bit her lip. I thought her lying was a teenage thing. She never was our friend, I said. Not really. But now what? Lisa swiped tears from her reddening cheeks, her lips taut with anger. Poor Brandon is dead, and we're the guilty parties. We're not the only ones. It was Eva's idea, just like you said. She goaded us into it. I see it now. My mind went into high gear. She should pay for what she did. That's how we'll get justice for Brandon. I don't know about you, but that would make me feel better. But how? Everyone believes Brandon died as a result of an accident. It's all settled, and we can't point the finger at her without incriminating ourselves. We'll figure it out, I said. But no more talking on Zoom, or on our phones. 
I'll leave a note for you tonight at nine at the foot of the suffragette monument. For the next week, we communicated using a dead drop method I learned about in a John le Carré novel, still wearing the masks the government advised even though the lockdown had been lifted. Then Lisa called me in the middle of the afternoon. Rex is going to be out of town for a few days, she told me as soon as I said hello. Eva's meeting me for lunch today. Outside, she added, so we'll be safe. I think it will be a long lunch. You'll have plenty of time. Great. I sucked in a giant breath and added, I'll send her a Zoom invite for tonight. Tell her to come so we can celebrate her engagement. Our last Zoom call ended with multiple rounds of toasts, white wine for Lisa and me, and margaritas for Eva. My hangover was fierce, but this time I knew how to handle the waiting, and I took it in stride when, a few days later, I received a couple texts from Lisa. Bad news on the grapevine. When he got back from his trip, Rex found Eva dead, apparent OD on tranks. Pandemic stress, according to the medical examiner, I told my mother on the phone the next week. What a shame, my mother said. She was such a pretty girl. Are you still friends with Lisa? As a matter of fact, I'm meeting her for lunch today, I said. Onion rings at Rotiers. It seems we have a lot in common. You've just listened to Lockdown for Murder by Cheryl Rieger. Welcome to the post-story portion of the podcast. I'm your co-host, Melissa, here with JW. Good morning, or afternoon, wherever you are. (laughs) (laughs) We've got the author of this juicy, murderous tale on the show today. Welcome, Cheryl. Hi, Melissa. Hi, JW. Nice (laughs) to be here. So good to have you. Cheryl is a fiction writer and fan of crime fiction about women with murder on their minds. Lockdown for Murder is the intersection of the pandemic and noir fiction of the 40s and 50s, and this is her debut fiction. It's so great to have you on the show, Cheryl. We are very excited to learn more. So let's find out more. Who is Cheryl Reeker? Well, I've been asking myself that for a number of years. <laughs> I've taken quite a circuitous route to being a writer, but I guess if I had to go back to my roots, I would say it goes back to Edgar Allan Poe, reading with the flashlight under the covers in elementary school. Oh, I love that image. And I mean, I think I imprinted on that like a little gooseling imprints on their mother walking around. Anyway, so I tried my first novel, I think around age 10. When I was, uh, yeah, and it was appropriately one sentence. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Wow, that's a serious novel. Yeah, I I couldn't figure out where to go with it because it started with the person being buried alive. (laughs) Murder from 10. Yeah. I was obsessed with premature burial at the time. So, you know, I was buried on Tuesday, and then there wasn't anywhere to go. But now I think that would actually be a very good opening sentence. I love that opening sentence. You are the queen of openings, I tell you. I love the (laughs) opening of this one. But go ahead, go ahead. Well, anyway, when I was in high school, I thought I might be a writer. Maybe everybody does. But then I went to college and took a different direction, went through the tech field, got a um, doctorate in social psychology, and traveled around the corporate world and about 
you know, a few years ago, decided to turn my hand to fiction. It was a good time to leave my job. So um, I tried to write fiction, and I realized I didn't know one single thing about it. I've <laughs> been reading my whole life, but I didn't know anything about writing. So um, it was interesting to start from scratch with something new. Oh, I love that. Yeah, that's great. How long ago did you start? I would say it was about 10 years ago that I began. Now, this is my fiction debut. I have written more than this story, but I mean, this story was really fun because it's so short and it was something unlike a novel that you can finish in a finite amount of time. Mm -hmm. And then you can say, that's done. So that was fun. Yeah, well, I was just going to say your craft is quite good for someone. If you, but ten years—that's a good amount of time. That's a lot, that's a good time to learn some some fiction craft for sure. <laughs> oh, One <yes>. hopes. <laughs> <laughs> and this is so timely. It's a fun story, but it's not. This is hearing about the pandemic in a way where you can relate. You know, you can relate. Not that everybody wants to commit murder, but you know what I mean. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about this story. What inspired you to write Lockdown? Well, I was taking a break from my novel, which I've finished since, and it was almost a year into the pandemic. And while my husband and I had been out of the apartment, and we'd even traveled a little bit, it was pretty much a lockdown situation, you know. And mm -hmm. if you remember back, it's so strange now to remember those early days when your only contact with the outside world was through a screen. Mm -hmm. yes. you, you looked at your phone. You, I turned on the news every day to see the numbers um, and what was happening in the outside world. And then I had actually way more of a social life in lockdown than I do now because <laughs> it, there were Zooms all the time. We were Zooming yeah. all mm -hmm, the time. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, thinking back to my roots, I was like, well, what if everything we're seeing through our screen is a lie? You know, yeah. that would be some, that would be a good science fiction or speculative fiction type thing, you know, and then you walk outside and it's a normal world. But, uh, I like it. it yeah, but I was reading noir short stories at the time, um, and Raymond Chandler, and I loved the story conventions of noir, which is, you have a femme fatale. This is my list. I don't know if it's the official list. It's probably an official <laughs> list somewhere. But my list was, you have a femme fatale. There's a plot and a double cross. Then there's a double cross on the double cross. Ah. At the end, more, uh, some kind of order. Order of a traditional mystery where the world is set right, the village is purged of its... Yeah. You know, arsenic toting mm. grandmother or whatever. Mm. <laughs> but, you know, it's not the, a good world that we're restored to because the good guys are really not that good in the story. So, yeah. there's sort of a precarious sense of morality through the whole thing. So, that's what I loved about it. And I thought, looking at friends on Zoom, what if one of them was lying? And then I just sort of try to take it from there. Wow. It made for a very juicy story. I loved it. I agree. Thank you. Yeah, yes. that's fun. I think our readers are probably like, very curious to see who the person is that wrote the story. <laughs> exactly. And I think you're so right about uh, seeing people 
in Zoom. Like, I agree with you. I'm the same way. I have much more of a social life on Zoom. I'm an introvert anyway. But you never know what's going on. And I think seeing that little box when you're on the screen, what's going on in that little square is so intriguing. And that pulls on that idea. This story pulls on that idea and really draws you in. So I think everyone is going to enjoy this and has enjoyed it as we just listened to it. Well, thanks. (laughs) And I think it's always, you know, another element that I like in stories, especially is unstable protagonists. Yes. Mm -hmm. Morally compromised. Um, They have some gigantic trauma, but they're really not walking a straight line through life. And that makes them a lot more interesting. I agree. Uh, Yeah. Although your protagonists don't really fall into that category in this story anyway, do they? Well, I think the girl who's the narrator, who's not named, Mm -hmm. is not quite... I would not call her psychologically stable hmm. yeah. because she's, she kind of gets wrapped up in something that happened to her in high school over 10 years ago. I mean, right. Yeah. Good point. Her mother calls her and says, why don't you make some friends? So I think she's not, she's not really a completely together person at the beginning, but I think she's improved by the end and then she's committed Two murders, so. (laughs) (laughs) And that is definite improvement. (laughs) She's made a friend. Isn't that nice? Oh, yes. I love it when we make friends. (laughs) We can do murder with them. I love it. Well, tell us about your writing past, I guess. So we know a little bit from what you just said a minute ago, but um, do you have writing goals? You set writing goals for yourself? And how do you try to achieve that? What's your take on that? Well, you know, I, I've gone through a lot of changes as a writer over the years that I've been working at this. And in general, I write better if I have a deadline. So, hmm. you know, I can say I'm going to get a first draft of this done by X and a second draft. Right now I want to get a second draft of my novel in progress by Memorial Day. So it's something to shoot for. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to have a goal. I'm in a writer's critique group. We are allowed to bring up to 4,000 words a week, which is a lot. That is. It is a lot. And it's a great group, so they make me. They don't make me, but I want them to make me. I let them make me. I Zoom with them, and they look at me, (laughs) and that makes me write 4,000 words that I'm not completely embarrassed by, which is hard. I mean, I'm not a fast writer, so, uh, you know, I set those kinds of goals. Um. I like to write new words in the morning. In the yes. Morning. I don't know why. And I've read, you know, I've tried different things. Oh, wake up and write before you even get out of bed. Or don't oh watch the news and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Yeah. I can't, I just can't turn off the news. I watch less of it now, but um, I might watch the news and then write new words. Hmm. S- start a new file every day with your novel to save the new novel is the name of the novel with the day state. So you have oh, a whole really? running, yeah, you have a whole running um, history of the book. I keep track of how many words total in the document as I go. And this mm-hmm. time, in a first draft, I'm trying something new, which is not to go back, you know, if I have a brainstorm, oh, it's a, this character has a sister. It's, a, it's an older sister, not a younger brother. 
Um, mm-hmm. I don't go back and make the changes. I just make a note. Now it's a sister, and I keep writing forward. Interesting. And then you I can gain go back momentum. And, yeah. So you don't lose momentum. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes I think you do have to go back and rewrite something, and it's always a good way to kind of get the wheels going is to rewrite the previous couple pages and then yeah. do the new words. Um, but sometimes I find I need to write a few pages to understand the point of view character and fill in the blanks, but basically keep going forward in a new draft. So- wow. That's that's very unique for sure. I've not heard that before. That's cool. It is. I have not heard starting a new document for every day that you write. I think that's really interesting. Well, you know, I just open it up and save as. Yeah. Right. And then in my Excel file, running Excel file, I sort of, I keep track of, you know, the date and how many words. Yeah. The document is at the end of that date. It might be plus or minus hmm. if I'm deleting things. Hmm. And then... Um, also in that Excel file, I keep kind of a running outline of the story as I've written it. Yes. But also sort of project ahead, like on page, I'm on, let's see, I'm on page 100. Well, on page 150, somebody's going to get killed. So I better start ramping up to that moment. The big structure of the story in front of. I th- Interesting. Yeah. I think making a running a running outline is a really great way to keep track of your novel. I think the pro, a lot of pros do it that way. If you look at the story discovery, um, it's not just story discovery, but some different methodologies of how to write a novel um, and keep track of, you know, every scene has the certain aspects that it's supposed to have in it. A lot of those pros will tell you to do exactly that, is to keep your outline so that you can be really organized to know where you need to go back, what scene needs to happen where. So I think that's great. Right. And then later you can find a scene if you need to move it and juggle it. Sure. You know, another thing is that I want to do is I just uh, sort of got immersed in the concept of plot point and emotional point. So in every scene or chapter, there's a point to the story. And there's a point that that story event has for your main character. Yes. So the dog gets hit by the car. So what does it mean to your main character? They're really happy because they hated the dog or they're, you know, it's a turning point in their lives. They love the dog. So you've got to have that emotional point too. So I'm going to try doing two, at least two columns, which is what happens in the story and then the emotional impact on the POV character, even though it's suspense novel, it is all about, well, it's all about the interior life of the POV characters. So you have to know that uh, impact of every scene on them. Wow, that's cool. Yeah, that's, um, I think, Melissa, you might have been talking about the story grid. Yes, the story grid. That's what yeah, I Yeah, that's Sean Coyne. He's, he's yeah. an editor. It's a, it's a particular approach to writing stories. It's fascinating. So does that mean you're, uh, I'm trying to coalesce in my brain here what that means so are you a discovery writer in that you just don't know what happens as it comes out or do you say okay well there's got to be a couple murders and i know who's going to be murdered but i don't know how they're going to happen or explain that a little bit you know that's exactly right it's a muddle i mean you <laughs> it's a mishmash but i mean basically i kind of like 
this is what I'm trying now. It's not always what I've done. But what I'm trying now is to just sort of get the minutiae about three chapters ahead, two or three. You try and fill in the minutiae blanks. Hmm. Yeah. But you know that you're working towards this story pillar that has to happen on page 150 or uh, 75 or, you know, usually at least every 25 pages something really important has to happen mm-hmm. or people like will not read the book <laughs> so <laughs> you have to really keep exactly. the story going yeah and have the emotional impact i think which is something i'm still learning about i think that's a a really good point because what drives a story is not necessarily the story it's the emotion that attaches to the story that's what people are there they're along for the ride f- because of those emotions. They want to experience the highs and the lows, and they have to be impactful. I think that's really true. Mm, I agree. Yes. So I was very curious with your you know, PhD in social psychology, is that, I don't know anything about social psychology, so maybe it's completely unrelated, but does that give you a different perspective on how you write these stories, or do you use the things that you have learned in that education to um, make your characters a certain way. Does that make sense? Yeah. That, it's such an interesting question. And you sent this sort of a version of this question to me earlier. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought about it before. But I think it, I, look, here's what social psychology does. It puts the psychology of the individual in a social setting. Hmm. It says, what are our attitudes and behaviors because we are in this social situation? Mm-hmm. And it, it really emphasizes in a way that we all live in our own individual realities in our heads. Mm -hmm. Right. And we create a shared version of reality through communication and conversation. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there are parts of my reality that other people will never know and vice versa. And that's how we all are, but we talk and create something shared. So that obviously is good for character building and stories. But I think also, as a writer, in the writing process, especially if you're starting off as a new writer, what are you doing? You're a writer, but you're only a writer in your own head. Hmm. So mm-hmm. I, think, I think it's important to, to be successful, to keep going, which is basically the, like the first thing you have to do to be successful is not quit. Okay. Yes. Sometimes, sometimes, it's yes. the, sometimes it's the only thing you have to do. <laughs> That's right. So um, I think it's important to sort of build that social reality that you're a writer in the world around you. So you can create a writing space or have writing clothes or a writing ritual or whatnot. But I think you, it's also important to have other people creating that world of the writer with you. So Interesting. your writer's critique group, mm-hmm. uh, and these are all just social supports that will keep you going forward. You know, a writer's critique group, going to classes, signing up for conferences, going to webinars, or watching Readsy on YouTube, which they have tons of great yeah, they do. videos. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to pay money, um, but you can find ways to support your writer life that way. And learn a lot at the mm-hmm. same time. Yes. Basically, surround yourself with all the tools to be a writer. And, and to accomplish your goal, you're surrounding yourself with your writerly 
aspirations. And I think that is so important, basically acting like a writer to become a, a writer and, and not giving up. I think that's great advice. Yeah, I agree. Oh, can you tell us a little bit about your other, I'm, I'm deviating a little bit, um, but I know everybody's going to be curious about what you're writing. Can you tell us about what you, you've talked about novels that you have written? Do you care to share any of that? Well, I've got, I mentioned that earlier uh, when I began to write, I didn't know what I was doing, but I knew I wanted to write a mystery novel. I thought a series, a mystery series with the okay. same protagonist. Mm-hmm. So I did write that novel. And I rewrote it over the course of about seven years until I realized, you know, then I kept hearing, you know, published authors at conferences saying, I wrote seven books and they're under my bed and they'll never be read before my first novel got published. And I thought, (laughs) you know what, I wrote seven books too, but they were all the same one. Maybe Maybe I should move on to the next one. So, um, So I started the next one. Um, you know, my ideas always seem to be sparked by some weird, dark and disturbing thought I have (laughs) about the real world, you know? Yes. Um, and I thought my sister was visiting me and I thought for some reason, murder came to mind. I don't really can't relate it. I hope she's not a listener. <laughs> she will listen, but she knows I love her, so it's okay. But, you know, I think as a writer in mystery and suspense, I mean, look, I don't cross a bridge or walk down a sidewalk without thinking, would you put a body there? Or where would you put a body? <laughs> I you know, love it. Like, we're driving down the highway, a beautiful country setting, and I said to my husband, you know this would be a great place to drop a body in the middle of the night. (laughs) There's no lights, there's barely any traffic, and there's a big drop-off. And then we started talking about, you know, should you put the body in a plastic garbage bag or not? So that's how I just... (laughs) The proper disposal equipment. Right. Jaunty drive. It could, you know, that could be a short story. But anyway, so, um, so murder came to mind, and I thought I had a story about two sisters, and one of them died. And then I'm, that one is sort of, it's in submission, probably going to be reworked a bit. Oh, it's a short story you're saying? Oh, no, that's a novel. Oh, oh and that, okay. So, yeah, I wrote that. I finished that over the pandemic. I was taking a break from it when I wrote the short story. Got it. Like, uh, and then um, finished it. And then I've started a new one. I've recently been reading a lot of Shirley Jackson and Patricia Highsmith. And I just love those some like, classics, really spooky and like messed up characters. Yeah. So I'm playing a little bit with that, a new novel, but I don't want to say too much about it because, you know, when you, here's the thing, if you talk too much, I find about your work in progress, it kind of takes the energy out of it. I think you kind of have to keep hmm. it bottled up. At least I do. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that I don't let my energy escape. So there's sometimes that that secretive part of writing a novel that makes you get ahead, at least for me. And I think that's why I get up early. It's like starting the day early when nobody else is around, you know, getting a novel going when nobody really knows exactly what you're doing yet. There's something motivating about that. And I don't know. I'm just thinking about it right now, but there is something motivating about that. That is a secret world that you're creating right there. And I sense... 
a mystery in the making. Maybe, <laughs> oh, yes. maybe even a DB. <laughs> oh, is, definitely a DB. Dead body, always a requirement. So. Oh, I love it. I love a good dead body. I am very much into uh, stories. We are very murdery, but this is it's very appropriate. Yes, it's, it is. With this story. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all in good fun. I mean, the, there some of the best novels out there are murder mysteries. And because it tells you so much about you know, different people, the aspects of life, you know, the motivation behind how someone could do that is to me very intriguing. I, I could not do that myself. And so I find it, I'm drawn to people who can or people who do or just any kind of situation like that. I think it's very interesting. Yeah, the book I'm working on is I'm going to have to write from a little bit of a darker place than I have before. And mm. it's kind of... Uh, worries me a little bit what what forces will be unleashed, but um, <laughs> I don't like stories or novels that don't have some kind of respect for dead people. You know, for somebody who's been murdered. I mean, yes. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, the short story is humorous, and that's a different category. But I have read published mystery or thrillers where there is little regard for human life really and i think that there should be so i try to have that in the novels that um even when bad guys die you know it's still somebody getting killed there's there's backlash and everybody has a family i think that's a really good point something to keep in mind when you're talking about something that is it is a very very serious subject but we make it into entertainment, and we have to keep that gravity about it as well. Yeah, know what the morality, what your moral footing is, I think. Yes. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Hey, so um, one of the things that you mentioned earlier is taking courses and things, and uh, you also mentioned the background materials that you sent us, that um, you've taken some courses at the porch, which uh, we love the porch. <laughs> yeah. A Nashville uh, local writers institution anyway uh, were there any particular classes that you took through there where you had like that aha moment or anything along those lines i just thought i'd kind of be curious to see about that i've taken several classes there in fact i took two from katie who you interviewed yes right katie mcdougall yes and she's a great teacher and a lot of writer and i learned great things from the porch one of my best takeaways though was getting to be friends with other writers who were in the class. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because that is something that continued on afterwards. Oh, that's and, great. Yeah. And, you know, creates that whole social support thing. Um, but in terms of classes, I mean, I'll hear the same thing over and over, and then one day it will just click. So I'm just kind of a believer of um, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Interesting. I, I haven't heard that, that. before. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, it's kind of a Zen thing, but it it's really <laughs> true as a writer. And then um, this often for me, the student is ready many, many times and has to hear the same message a few times. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, repetition is how we learn. And I think if you're not open to hearing things again and again, you're not open to change. Yeah, and they make they give you, you know, exercises to do and you have to share your work in the class and that's good for new writers mm-hmm. because it's very scary to do that. So it's it makes you vulnerable and you have to go through that. I mean, I don't think we're ever not vulnerable, but yeah. 
especially as a new writer, you can have too much confidence as a new writer. If you go in as a, a new writer and say, I'm going to write a novel and this is going to be published next year, uh, <laughs> you're in for big learning. So, mm-hmm. yeah. and maybe some harsh reality. But if you never achieve that harsh reality and you finish a novel and write it in your, well, it may be great. Maybe, you know, the greatest thing that ever came along, or it may just be horrible and nobody will tell you. So (laughs) you don't, you know, you have to learn is what I'm saying. Yes. Very good points. Well, we touched on your writing atmosphere. So learning is a part of creating your writing atmosphere, but what about Creating that writing space is another part of it. Where do you like to write? What does your ideal writing atmosphere look like? You know, I really just need my laptop and a cup of coffee. If I'm yes. at home, I can close the door. I can sit anywhere. I used to go to Starbucks to write, and I liked that noise, that background noise. Um, sometimes I will plug in my headphones and listen, and this is a really good practice, I think. If you're writing and you want a particular mood, I will put on music on my headphones. No words, just like Philip Glass. Hmm. Who, go to Spotify and find Philip Glass. And then, I'm writing that down. Or, or Bernard Herrmann, who scored the Hitchcock movies. Oh. And uh, he has, like, if you go to YouTube and look at the Bernard Herrmann um sweet for vertigo it just immediately puts you in a mood of suspense terror oh yeah spookiness, wow, that's great. yeah you know and so i i like that because otherwise i tend to write like oh she went to the house it was so pretty so i like pretty houses you know but it's supposed to be a haunted house it scares the hell out of her so then i put on bernard herman and i hit Backspace, backspace, backspace. <laughs> yes. The blood and gore oozed everywhere. <laughs> I mean, you know, she's tense. The stones echoed, you know, stuff like yes. that. Yes. Oh, I love that. Cool. Well, I can't believe we're almost at 30 minutes here. Oh, my goodness. Right our time limit. We might have to increase our time in the future. I don't know. Um, I know. That has but, gone by so fast. I I'm... know it has. Well, we'll go a little longer. But, Melissa, do you have a question you want to ask? And then we'll go to our... Our last question, which the last always has writing advice. Yeah. Okay. So, writing aside for just a moment, let's dig in a little bit more about you and what do you like to do when you're not writing? Uh, well, I read crime fiction. So, I've got <laughs> big surprise. <laughs> That's a shock. Um, <laughs> I'm rereading actually some Agatha Christie and P.D. James. She's a great literary mystery writer. And Patricia Highsmith and Shirley Jackson, of course. So I'm rereading books. I do try and read new thrillers, but at the moment I'm not reading anything new. Um, but then, of course, watch crime movies on TV. You know? yeah. <laughs> and you watch the news. No wonder the, you the wrote news the is short a, story. Yes, <laughs> the news is a crime, but let's not go there. Yeah. Do you ever I watch have... the Forensics Files or something like that, and they sort of right. show you how they figured it out? I... Once in a while, you know, I tend to like look at those in the TV guide and I go, oh, that looks good. And I tape it, but I never watch them. Interesting. Um, It feels a lot like work to me to do that (laughs) for some reason. But I love what right now I dig sort of dig around for good murder series on different streaming channels. And we just started a mini series on BritBox called Guilt. 
It's four one-hour mm-hmm. episodes, and it reminds me a lot of Dead to Me, if you ever saw that on Netflix, which I mm-hmm. love. So if you oh, haven't seen it, okay. it's it. the stories sort of mix elements of noir with black humor and mm-hmm. then touching moments of real emotion. So um, Guilt is, is terrific on BritBox. We're really enjoying that. But then we're going to go on from there to probably The Unforgotten or... Um, some of the new Netflix, I like true crime documentaries. Some of those have been really good on Netflix. So, yeah, that's a little, hmm, that sounds like a little boring. Oh, if I do want to, <laughs> <laughs> like, boy, is this girl one-note character. Um, <laughs> I do like, um, if I really need a palate cleanser, I read philosophy and medieval history. But that's if I really need a break from crime. Wow. Well, okay. medieval history is kind of a bit of a mystery in and of itself, right? <laughs> it is. It's, and, you know, there's a great podcast called The History of English. So I listen to that and learn about the history of England and the history of the language and, you oh, know, neat. kind of takes you back. It's very interesting. Great. Yeah. Cool. Very nice. All right. Well, we're, uh, I'd say we're just about out of time here. So our usual question at the end of the show is for you to provide some advice or resources or basically whatever you want to new writers, aspiring writers, or readers that are interested uh, potentially becoming writers? Well, this is for both readers and writers, which is if you're in a genre, and by the way, I just think literary fiction is its own genre. Mm -hmm. It has very clear expectations about the use of language and points of view and narrative devices that should be convoluted or, or presented in a new way or whatnot. So um, I, I think of literary fiction is just another genre. And I think what you have to do is just deeply immerse yourself in the genre that you are interested in writing. Yes. Um, read deeply. There's nothing that you would learn from a class or from a conference that you can't learn from reading a great book in your genre. Mm -hmm. But it's not just reading it. If you want to write, then, I think you really have to tear it apart. You have to analyze that book. Mm -hmm. You can outline it. You can do sort of write a little reader response to it, write and make yourself write. Give yourself a college assignment on it to make yourself really grapple with the craft of the story, how it was constructed, the story structure, the, you know, everything, characters, dialogues, whatever it interests you. But you have to really grapple with stories to get something out of them as a writer. But first of all, just read. Just read everything you can. And that's yes. it. Yes. Great. That's terrific. Yeah. Uh, well, one, yeah, definitely. One author, I don't remember who it was off the top of my head, was um, so basically read a book and then rewrote the book. Like, by hand and stop typing it literally just to kind of get the flow and to learn how the sentence structure I mean he just copied it like read the book and was writing it next to him sort of get that into his oh, veins yes. yeah you yeah. didn't recommend that other people do that necessarily because it took a long time <laughs> but you know he felt like you you kind of absorb the book like you're saying give yourself an assignment I have heard one writer who I think won a Pulitzer or something for a short story and he said what he did was type out a Flannery O'Connor short story mm. he copied it word for word typed it out on his typewriter mm-hmm. and carried it around with him and kept looking at it interesting um, there's another very successful writer I've heard speak uh, who's from Nashville who said 
they typed out John Sanford novels until they figured them out and then just started writing their own because that person wanted to write like John Sanford. And I thought that was brilliant. Because no matter what you do, you will not sound like John Sanford or Flannery O'Connor. You will sound like yourself, but you can learn from their their word choice, the sentence rhythm, um, the ramping up of tension or the building up of character, how they do that. Mm -hmm. But you have to pay close attention to it. And that's... You really do. I think, you know, look... If you go to art museum, you know, I always used to see this. Artist students sitting there, and they're, like, sketching the yeah. Da Vinci or the Renoir or whatever it is they're sketching. And I was like, well, that's so interesting, but I wonder why they're doing that. They can just look at the picture. Oh, it's because they want their hands to go through those motions mm-hmm. that created that swirl. They want to yeah. feel that through their own body. And that's why I love, J.W., what you said about typing out uh, stories or novels mm-hmm. that typing or handwriting mm-hmm. that you admire that you want yeah. to learn from because it will go through your body then and you can just you just learn so much from yeah well, that's a good point that is awesome i'm gonna <laughs> do that i am gonna do that i have not done that and i'm going to do that because i think that's a really great exercise it's another way of, of absorbing right yeah Right. Reading is one way and then doing the activity is another. Yeah. And outlining. I outline novels all the time. Yeah. yeah. Um, okay. I'll stop if I can't figure out who done it. I'll stop in the middle of the novel and outline it up to that point and write who do I think did it and who what what do I think is happening. And then I'll finish the novel and Interesting. See, and I'm not uh, you know, it doesn't matter unless it's a puzzle mystery, it doesn't matter if you're right or not. If you kept reading in the for suspense um, the the novelist did their job. Right, right, right. Ah, great. You're quite the teacher, Cheryl. Very yeah, it's terrific. <laughs> yeah, what a great show. Good advice and uh, good story. We're so excited to have you on. Thanks for submitting your story, Cheryl, and coming on the show to talk with us. It was yes. so fun to meet you guys and to talk. Thanks for having yes, me. Yes, so great having you. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please help us spread the word by telling your friends or giving us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. Those reviews really make a difference. We'd like to thank the folks at Literature and Latte, the makers of Scrivener, for sponsoring the podcast and providing an amazing tool for writers. If you'd like to take your writing to the next level and use a tool designed for writers by writers, then give Scrivener a try. What have you got to lose? The Story Discovery Podcast is a free, narrated podcast of the works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available for free at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you'd like to support the continuation of this podcast and or the magazine, please consider a small donation through Patreon at patreon.com slash Onyx Publications. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase. If you'd like to submit a story or poem for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.